John 1, 19 through 31. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself, he said? Oh, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of those sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. It is nice, nice, that's a word, <clears throat> it's very wonderful to be in front of you this morning, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Um, this morning we have the, the pleasure of finishing up this, uh, this short series on the character of Christ, and uh, honestly I was... Um, as I was preparing for this, uh, this message, um, the question kept gnawing at me, how, how in the world do you, do you sum that up? How do, you, how do you finish out a series like that? Honestly, we could probably continue on in this series on the character of Christ for, for a long time. We could make it a long series. We could spend a year there. Right, the the character. I mean, when we start to think about the character of, of Jesus, and we start to ponder the depths of his attributes, I mean, it doesn't grow stale. You look at the things that he did, and and who he was, who he is. You start to ponder those things, and and honestly, we can continue and continue to continue. We don't serve a limited savior. We serve an eternal God. We can't analyze him, we can't measure him and succinctly put it together and staple it and hand it out and say, here we go, here's, here's who Jesus is, we've, we've finished it. And honestly, if we took Jesus and we, we tried to, if we tried to measure him and measure the parameters and, and fit him inside a box, however we decorate that box and hand it out, it would not be, would not be adequate. We serve a God who, who can't be put in a box. And honestly, if we could, if we could sit here over whatever period of time and really measure out and define Jesus and say we've come to the end of that, and that would not be a God worth serving, would not be a God worth worshiping. He's big. He's eternal. He's worthy of all of our worship. But, I mean, I still have to teach something this morning. So, I'm looking through, you know, I can't just say that and close in prayer. You know. Start to think through, these, you know, the different big attributes of God, the different characteristics, these, these big titles for God, right? You know, do we go king, right, king of kings, or lord of lords, right? Do we go, you know, delve into that for his eternal dominion over all things? Do we... Do we talk about, to try to sum this up, his eternal nature, right? It'd go beyond those things that we've looked at before to a God that is eternal and difficult to understand. 
Do we track through and see how he's a promise keeper? He's one who keeps his covenants with, with those who serve him. So I, I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do. So like a lot of lost people, they start reading through Gospel of John. That's a good thing to do. And uh, honestly, in that first chapter, got it. Very first, you could say, preaching that we really hear from John. We hear him give a testimony about himself and who he's not. And then he, that morning, preaches a one-sentence sermon. It sort of encapsulates this thing. Well, let's, look at, let's look at that. John the baptizer declares in this one sentence, I think one of these defining characteristics of Christ is truly worthy for us to spend some time looking at today. So, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. He says, when he sees Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 11-year-old me never really thought that Jesus being called a lamb was all that exciting or triumphant, you know, and you see the crochet sheep and lambs and things like that, and Jesus is my shepherd and things, and and honestly, that's the attribute where it's like, I don't know, Jesus is cool and all, but I I don't know about a lamb, that doesn't sound very triumphant, I really don't put that in the category triumphant, right? The baby sheep. Uh, but honestly, the more that you look at it, the more that you see this title and you, you, you walk through Scripture and you see this, this picture of the Lamb of God, you know, we can kind of start to discover this particular characteristic, this particular title that Jesus carries is one of the most complete pictures of the redemption of Jesus, the redemptive story, the redemption of all of this world, of this universe. So we're going to do that together. So we're going to start together. We're, we're going to walk through this thing together. Because uh, when John declares this, don't worry, we're going to come back to John a couple times. When John the baptizer declares this, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The people who were hearing him, they had a picture in their mind. They had an understanding. And for us, an 11-year-old me, it's not just a fluffy baby animal. That's not what is being really, truly discussed. And so we're going to look a little little deeper into that. So so come with me. We're going to walk through this. If you have your Bibles, uh, whether they be physical or they be digital, we're going to be moving around a lot today. Um... And I would, I would challenge you to, to, to stick with it and to, to look it up for yourself. Uh, Janet, well, we will have it up here too. We're going to start out in the very first mm, veiled mention of this concept and this idea. Let's start in Genesis 3. Start at the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 3. A little bit of context before this. This is right after the fall. This is right after the curses. Humanity had failed the first and only test they'd ever received, don't eat a piece of fruit. you think that would be pretty easy to obey. For some reason, they figured it was not. They disobeyed. The larger idea, the larger concept is they did not trust God's word. That's the, the, bigger, the bigger lesson. So they were, they became the, um, I was going to say the victims of the fall, but that's not correct. They, they were the originators and then also became the victims of, of the fall. Curses were given to them. And if you remember, the curse that they should have received that day, you go back to chapter 2, verse 17. The actual proclamation was that if they were to eat of that fruit, what would happen? Interactive portion. What would happen? They would die, but very specifically, what does it say in chapter 2, verse 17? They would die when? In the day that they ate of it, they would die. Now we get here, do they die? They don't die. So did, 
Did God kind of fudge the numbers there? Like, oh, well, we'll just, you know. And I've heard people say, well, they started dying. Yeah, it says in that day, they would die. If you look at verse 21, what it says there is, God made for them garments, garments of skin. He said, and clothed them. The subtext of that is what? Now, I could have just generated skins. But what's in play here? Something died. Something did die that day. Now, it doesn't say specifically what kind of animal, but that's not the point. The point is, is that there was supposed to be a death that day, and Adam, received, Adam and Eve did not receive that death. Something else did. Something else that was not guilty, something else that did not perform that action, they did not eat of the fruit, they died anyway. An innocent died, and what did God do? Took the skins and did what? Clothed them. He covered them. That animal sacrifice became a covering for their shame. These principles here are so important because this event right here establishes this understanding that permeates Almost all of human culture, all other religions have this kind of, well, I say all. Of course, every time you say an absolute, someone's going to point something out. But the understanding of a sacrifice is there. It gets diluted, it gets changed, it gets morphed, but this idea of sacrifice starts here. Something innocent died on, on, uh, on the behalf of someone else. So there are three things that happened that day. Substitution. Some animal died. Instead of Adam and Eve. Substitution. Second thing, a covering. That animal's death provided a covering for Adam and Eve. For some reason, they had tried to make a covering for themselves not adequate. God made a covering. Third, propitiation. That's your vocabulary word for the day. Propitiation. Propitiation means that the wrath of God in that day was satisfied. Satisfied. Okay? Propitiation. It was enough. And so we have this idea, this principle established, started right there. That on behalf of human beings, something else could die in its place. Now, was it a perfect sacrifice? No way. It didn't complete it. It didn't finish it. But what it established was this understanding that something else could cover them, could become that propitiation. This establishes that sacrificial concept for all of humankind. And it's employed in lots of different beliefs and religions around the world. Now, we know, we know that it was impactful because the very next chapter, chapter 4, we didn't get very far in our generations Cain and Abel. It says that they were bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. These are the stories that we hear about when we're children, and, and we need to return to them when we have a greater understanding, because there's, there's things for us to take in here. So in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, the fruit of the ground. Now, right from the outset, that's not a bad thing. There's actually... Offerings that can be made in the, in the law that are grain offering and fruit offering, things like that. So on its, on its outset, it's not bad. Look at this next verse here. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Those are the choicest parts. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but what happened with Cain? With Cain, it was not so. He did not accept it. said, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So we haven't even gotten very far, but this understanding of a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, is there. Now it's not, not just that Cain brought something that wasn't a blood sacrifice. A lot of people focus in on that. Because, you know, an offering, or you're coming to bring something before the Lord. But what it was is this ties this concept of it's not just the sacrifice, it's also the heart. Because we see what happens with Cain after this. God says, hey, if you, if you do well, then, you know, it'll go well with you. And rather than talk with Abel, rather than figure things out, 
he continued to be angry. God warned him that sin is crouching at the door. What results is the first murder. It's pretty intense. So this understanding of sacrifice being tied not just to the, the individual thing, but also to the heart is also established here. So this idea of sacrifice. It's there. Genesis 22. We don't have to go there, but it's, it's Abraham bringing Isaac up the mountain. Isaac stops, says, hey, uh, where's the lamb? So even before we get to the law, even before we have things established that way, where God codifies this stuff, there's an understanding. Hey, use a lamb for sacrifice. We start to get these pieces. They're already there. They're already established very early on. And that story is beautiful. That, that story is worth spending some time. Because Isaac, he's, not, he's most likely not a child. It says that he carried all the wood up the mountain. He has an understanding. He, he might actually be in his late 30s, early 40s at this point. He carries it up, and he knows exactly what his dad means when he says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And he walks up anyway. He's a willing sacrifice. So we get even more added to this. So we have this understanding of the substitutionary use of a sacrifice. Blood sacrifice. Look at Exodus 12. By the time we get to Exodus 12, people of Israel have been in trouble. Enslaved for 400 years. The Lord goes to redeem them. When it sues the ten plagues because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, we finally get to the last plague. Last plague is a promised death to the firstborn if they did not obey what the Lord was going to tell them. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, first few verses, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of their persons, according to each they'll eat, uh, and make account for a lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Very specific, right? You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So he's giving some grace there. And I mean, I have lambs enough to do this this night. You can take it from the goats too. But it still has to be without blemish. Verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then again, verse 21, it says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And what they were to do is to take that blood and they were to take these stalks of hyssop and they were to paint the, the lentils and the the, the doorposts of their house going into the house trust that that blood was going to be enough the whole point here is, is that God is establishing not just a blood sacrifice but that it must be particular it must be perfect so we keep building on this concept the Passover lamb has to be without blemish very specifically a very particular kind of sacrifice Let's go back to John. When John, John chapter 1, John the baptizer, when he cries out, Behold, hey, everybody look, the Lamb of God. All these ideas, all these concepts, they're all there for them. He's talking to a Jewish audience. Here's what's really interesting. Exodus 12, it says in there that the elders are supposed to take it for their household. The idea was, this is for God's people. This is for the people that God has established that he's going to save. He's going to take them out of Egypt. What does John say here? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Something amazing was happening. God was providing a lamb, not just for the household of Israel, John recognized something really specific was happening. 
this Lamb of God. He's identifying Jesus. This Lamb of God would be to take away the sins of the world. This is actually to go back not to fulfill just the Passover law. This is to go back to fulfill Genesis chapter 3. This goes all the way back. This Lamb of God was going to take away the sins of the whole world. Open to the Gentiles, those outside of Israel. This is bigger than just we're practicing our festival. So much bigger. Yet God uses that as a picture to show what this really is. So think about this. Jesus, he's perfect. There's a lot of things being said here. He's that perfect lamb. He's that particular lamb. There's no one else that could do this. It's this one. But also saying, Jesus is the substitute, not just for his household, not just for his tribe, not just for Israel. It says for the world, for all of humanity, fulfilling that promise that God made in chapter 3 of Genesis that God would send someone who would crush the head of the serpent. This is, this is a pretty big deal. Turns out John gave a pretty good sermon. <laughs> Turn through to Colossians real quick if you have your Bibles. Colossians chapter 2. This is where we're going to expand on this a bit. But Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes something really interesting. Verse 16 And, of course, we're jumping into the context of a letter. So, um, Paul says, Therefore, do not let one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He said, These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is Christ. So, when we look at that, what we start to understand is that there's something special and unique concerning Jesus special enough to even impact the original giving of this understanding of the sacrifice. In Hebrews, just, just going back to the book of Hebrews, just in general, the book of Hebrews, as it rolls out, the author starts to talk about the practices of the temple, the practices of Israel, the practices of the people, the priesthood. It starts to show that Jesus actually was the greater fulfillment of these things. In fact, to the point where when God establishes the priesthood, establishes these these sacrifices, what he's actually doing is pointing forward to something else that is greater than that thing. We get a similar idea when Paul talks about marriage. Because what Paul says is marriage, this institution given to us in the garden that, that, that every human culture has, actually was to prepare us and show us and give us understanding around Christ's relationship to the church. So for all those generations, marriage is practiced so that when Jesus shows up and he reveals his relationship to the church, ah, I understand that. Because it's part of the very fabric of human existence, of our experience. I understand that concept. God does a similar thing throughout the Old Testament, throughout the practices. These are all pointing to Jesus. So these sacrifices, these things, they are not, they were not meant to be an end in of themselves, as though you could somehow sacrifice something and gain God's favor in that type of way, what they were, going back to Cain. It was a practice of the heart. I sacrificed because I worship the Lord. I have allegiance with the Lord. And they were trusting. The Lord is going to take care of this. There There was nobody who practiced in the sacrificial system who thought, good, we sacrificed some animal, so now we're good. Because guess what you'd have to do the next year? You'd have to do it again. So just like an expiration date on it or something? No, the whole idea was is that it's not something that it's a once and for all you're done kind of thing. You had to do it every year. So think about this. It says that the lamb had to be a year old. So guess what you're doing a year before that? 
you were preparing for the next year's sacrifice. So you get home. All right, we got to start getting this, pick, find the, the lamb for next year. Because you had to protect it and you had to care for it and make sure that that lamb was without blemish. Not injured or something else. It took a whole year, so you had to prepare. Oh, we we'll just finished that sacrifice. Now we got to get another one ready. There was never this understanding that you would be finished. It would finally satisfy the wrath of God, judgment of God. And yet, what we see with Jesus is something deeper, something more. You can say, how in the world do we really know that? How do we know that that's what it's doing? How do we know the writer of Hebrews is thinking about those type of things? Go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 gives us a really peculiar, unique, recorded event. Chapter 27, this is the crucifixion of Jesus. Verses 50, 54. Oops. Verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This was Jesus on the cross, having suffered, died, gave up his spirit. Cried out with a loud voice. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split this part I've never heard anyone adequately understand or uh, explain. And the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised. That's crazy. And they were coming out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Why is there not more stuff written about that? Anyway, it's, it's pretty pivotal. It's a, kind of a weird thing. Verse 54 says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The man they had just helped to crucify. At his death, earthquakes, and we know from other gods with darkness, these other crazy things are happening to where they go, That was the Son of the God. These executioners, these, these ones that would watch over this, they, they said, this is, there's something unique here. This is, this, is, this is different. The Passover lamb, the sacrifice that happened, that Passover was, had such an impact that the curtain in the temple split top to bottom. We don't talk a whole lot about this a lot of times, but at the death of the lamb of God, top to bottom is significant. God is the one that removes that barrier between the greater humanity and his holy of holies. There is now access, which means that that sacrifice that took place, that Passover, with that man, with that God, had such an impact so as to change the very nature of the relationship that God the Father has with humanity That's a big deal. That's huge. That's how we know that what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is true. Every other sacrifice before, do you think they were waiting to see, hey, is the veil going to split this time? Nope. All right, maybe next year. Like, they weren't even, that wasn't even in their purview. They weren't even thinking about that. They weren't expecting that. But that's what happened with the death of this Lamb of God. Amazing. It's amazing to think about. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 7. We get from Paul, he writes and talks about Jesus in this role. He happens to be talking about in general, this is interesting, in general talking about sexual immorality in the church. But somehow he, he kind of deviates from what we would probably think and, and starts talking about this. Verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, so that, I'm sorry, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, for us, 
It's like, okay, it's a lot of talk about leaven and yeast and things like that. But this was, this was all part of Passover. Part of Passover, and some of you have been part of a Seder, they talk about getting leaven out of the house, getting the yeast out and all those different things. And that concept, that idea is that, you know, just a little bit. If you, if you left a little bit in the bread, it actually is going to react. And you'll be able to see it. You can't hide it. You can't hide the fact that there's leaven in bread. And so there's a whole, there's a whole uh, festival, whole, whole feast week beforehand, before Passover, where you're getting all the leaven out. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's not a very creative title, but he does the job. Uh, just get all the leaven out. Right? He says, just even a little leaven. In this context, he's talking about sexual morality in the church. It shows itself. Right? And then he uses that picture. That picture of the sacrificial Passover lamb. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is revolutionary. The fact that Paul points back and says, our sacrificial lamb was sacrificed. That means that this sacrifice that's being discussed was good enough. They didn't prepare for another one. They weren't waiting for another year to do do another sacrifice or something else. Past tense sacrificial lamb, Passover lamb that was sacrificed is sufficient that concept, that idea is revolutionary. Now for us, we think, well, yeah, of course, Jesus died in the past, yeah. But do we really let that impact our daily life? Do we really think about the fact that because that sacrificial lamb has been sacrificed on our behalf, that was our substitution. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 5 Chapter 5, verse 8. It says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's our substitution. He is our substitute. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In Peter's introduction in his letter, He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification in the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, that blood that was sacrificed, it is sprinkling, it is our covering, substitute covering. First John, this time First John, Kristen. First John, um, chapter 4. Oh, that's still 1 Peter. That would be a different thing. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Substitution, covering, propitiation. This covers everything that was done in the garden for us on behalf of us. God the Father with our first parents, with humanity, these things were done. And these are all attributed to Christ, to that one sacrifice that it talks about in 1 Corinthians that was done in the past. It is done. It is complete. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Instead, we need to live in light of it. And that really is the next question, right? One of the most deeply theological questions you can ever ask, especially when you get to a point like that, is you say, so What? And so what? You don't have to have an attitude about it, but well, so what? You know. So what is the impact? How does that change? What, how does that change how we live, what we do? Some of you might be thinking, like, that's a, that's a very big, overarching idea, but tomorrow I've got to go to work. I've got to go to my family. i got to do so. So how does this impact us? How does this change what we do? And honestly, in order to understand this, we have to go somewhere we probably would not be expecting to go. Turn with me to Revelation. It's at the end. We're going to look at chapter 5, but just to give you the context, chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, John is brought in a vision to the throne room. And in John, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 4, John sees the glory of of the throne room. It's full of angels. He sees the throne. There's the Ancient of Days. He sees the Spirit of God. There's the elders there. These 
these characters that are just mysterious and just and you see the four living creatures and it is just I mean too much you can you can say John thank you for writing this thing but we know that it was insufficient to really describe what you saw but thank you for trying right that's that's chapter four we're hit with the glory of the throne room chapter five it says then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Some of you feel like we're lost. We will get back to John, I promise you. We're not that lost. We'll get there. It's okay. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So understand, we're in the throne room. Insane stuff is all around, right? And you've got the Ancient of Days on the throne. You've got the Spirit of God, the full manifestation of the Spirit of God. It says the seven spirits of God are there. And this angel stands in the throne room and says, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open this scroll, to break its seals? Verse 3. It blows my mind every time I read it. Verse 3 says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Where are they? This is in the throne room of God. We've got the Ancient of Days. We've got God the Father on the throne. We've got the full manifestation of the Spirit right there in the throne room. And it says, no one was worthy to open it. It is such an impactful moment for John. Verse 4, it says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I could just imagine just, the, just being overcome by the scene and what's going on in this angel, this proclamation, just the silence, the silence in heaven. John's just overcome. He starts to weep. No one is worthy. One of the elders said to me, this, I, I add in like, comedic things sometimes I think I think that that's how I view it sometimes but it's almost like John's weeping over there one of the elders like hey John 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 um, it's okay all right, so, hey John um, it's alright um, weep no more so it's going to be okay the, the, the lion that behold interesting he uses the word behold he says behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. It's like, John, it's okay. It's the, the, uh, Jesus is coming. It's okay. Just hold on a second. This is all part of it. Just wait. Verse 6. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a triumphant conquering king. Nope. I saw the prophet. No. Not a priest or high priest. Even though the angel just, or the, should say the elder just said to him, the lion is coming. He doesn't see a lion. What does he see? It says he saw a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Past tense. Had been slain. Seven horns and seven eyes. It's revelation. You got to make it weird. Right? Seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It says, then he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They all fell down and worshiped the lamb. This most triumphant moment Pinnacle, pinnacle of the human experience here, the fulfilling of these things, because this would mean the end is taking place, nothing can stop it. And what does what does Jesus show himself as? A lamb. Not just a lamb, says the lamb that was slain. Lamb that was slain took the scrolls. No one else was found worthy but a slain lamb. This is amazing. A 
at this point. 11-year-old me is embarrassed to ever think that a lamb could not be cool, right? This is, this is amazing because this is the fulfilling of the first promise made to the family of humanity. Lamb slain is about to just get it done. He's going to finish it up. He's actually fulfilling what he has set out to accomplish. Now there's some scholars who say that this whole time in heaven, this moment when John is weeping and there's no one found worthy, they say that this moment might actually be a vision of right before Jesus ascends. Right before he ascends, he says, the Father's given me all authority. And then he, whoosh, and he ascends and he shows up. And the thought is, is that no one can find him. Where is, where is, where is this one worthy? At the ascension, then he shows up. Hey, the lamb is there. He was slain. So what we have in this, the lamb that was slain now alive would mean that that is a big picture of the resurrection there. That's the promise. That's the promise that we have. And so as you go throughout the rest of Revelation here, there's a lot of things that Jesus does during this time. Every time there's a reference to the lamb, it's in this triumphal uh, relational position in his glory. And it shows up a few different times. Uh, if you go to Revelation chapter 19, very intense chapter, Look at verse 6. Whoops. 19, verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. At this pinnacle of moments, this time when we're actually at the wedding feast. It's described as what? The wedding feast of the lamb. Could very well have said the king, the savior, even son of man that would have fit the lamb. Why? Because it is the one title. It's the one attribute, the characteristic of Jesus that shows that he truly is worthy to take this position. He was the lamb. He's the one promise in Genesis chapter 3. And you can follow it along all the way through until you see the fulfillment of the promise. So he takes on this title. And all these moments of amazing like, praise and honor and glory, he's the lamb. And it carries on. There's, there's several different mentions of this. In, in chapter 21, verse 9, it talks of the one who came with the seven angels, with the seven bulls, the seven last plagues, spoke to me saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Verse 14, says, and all the wall of the city, the 12 foundations on them were the 12 names of the apostles, the 12 apostles of the lamb. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, our relationship with Jesus all the way into eternity future is connected with this understanding of the Lamb. We will never forget this story of redemption because these titles, these, these moments, Jesus says, I'm the Lamb. He's proclaimed as such. He is our lamb. Chapter 22. The very end. The angel showed me a river of water, of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Leaves the tree for healing the nations. Listen to this. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. We have a picture of this return to Eden. 
beautiful river and on each side the tree of life. First time humanity has been able to see it since the garden. There's a return. We're back. And who does it say is on the throne? It's the lamb. It's the lamb. So, here's where we get back to John. John chapter 1. John 1, we hear this sermon from John the baptizer. He says, Behold, look, pay attention. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. John looks at a living Savior who then takes up that mantle. What we see in the throne room of heaven is a lamb that was slain, who again, lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. So this now comes back to us. Because a lot of times we'll talk about this, we'll say, this is a good thing, this is great, sacrifice took place in the past, good, I believe it. I'm in. My allegiance is with Jesus. But what's sad is for a lot of us, and I'm not, I'm not here to blame anyone or make someone feel bad or if you feel convicted, that's the Holy Spirit, not me. But a lot of times we talk about our salvation as though it's in the past. Jesus died. Yes, he did. He died in the past. Some of us highlight it more because of things like different other religions and other belief systems who say, no, once he died, then we have the promise of resurrection. It's done. It's in the past. But here's the thing. We have a Savior who is alive. We have a Savior who we can actually point out and say, behold, it's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. We actually can be, like John the baptizer, we can give the same sermon. And the thing is, is that that Savior is our, it's, he's ours today. Not just in the past, not just when you were saved, but we can actually point to a Savior who is alive, who gives the promise of resurrection, who is, it says, on the throne in heaven, even now. He is a living Savior. Not past tense Savior, a living Savior. And too often when we talk to family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, fill in the blank, he is a Savior in the past. He is a Savior who died in the past. Family, he is, he is a Savior who lives now. He's the Lamb of God now. It's just that now we can point to him and say, look, he's the lamb that was slain. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It feels like a small nuance, right? It's like, okay, okay, got it. I'll just switch my, my, uh, my verbs around, and it'll be, okay, the present tense Savior. But honestly, that, that impacts what we do, how we live, how we go to work tomorrow. This impacts how we parent this changes how we interact with each other. This changes how we forgive each other. That we can point and look and say, look, we have a Savior who's alive, who's on the throne. He's the Lamb. He's the total fulfillment of everything promised to us in Genesis all the way through the Scripture. He's there. And so that changes how we live with one another. It should change how we interact with others. Why in the world would we be timid? to share the truth of who Jesus is since he is the lamb that was slain on the throne. Is he our present tense forever savior, our forever sacrifice, once sacrificed, still alive, lamb of God? We're starting to enter into holiday season maybe interacting with family they haven't seen in a while maybe you're happy you won't see them for a while 
whoever we interact with, whoever we talk to, whoever we are blessed with being able to share parts of our lives, moments of our life, if this is not part of our reality, we need to encourage each other to make this forefront part of our reality, that we have a slain lamb on the throne right now who is calling us to live as though we have a slain lamb on the throne as our king right now. All promises fulfilled. I lack nothing in Christ, and neither do you. Yeah, we got difficulties. Yeah, we got stuff going on. Yeah, there's, there's things, but you know what? I lack nothing. There's not one thing in the passage of my own life where I look back and to say, man, I just missed out because I have it. I have it all in that slain lamb. I have all things in Christ who strengthens me. He is mighty to save. There is no other sacrifice ever made that was mighty to save us. Do we live in light of that characteristic of Christ? Heavenly Father, God, we, Lord, in reading the view of the throne room, God, and recognizing that as we pray to you, that is a reality. Lord, I pray would, Lord, move us to measure our words and measure our time, God, but the fact that you give us access to your throne. Lord, I pray we would. I pray we would often come to you, Lord, with challenges of life, with discouragements, knowing that we can come into that throne room and we can come before the slain lamb and enjoy the fellowship that we have with our Savior. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we think even more deeply about these things, Lord, I pray that we would understand the seriousness of our own sin so that at the same time we can understand the immense measure of grace that was given to us with your sacrifice. Lord, I pray that that would actually drive us, God, to share this amazing truth. No worrying about awkwardness, no worrying about being timid or if someone will receive it or make fun of us. Lord, we have a triumphant slain lamb for a savior. And Lord, I pray that we would Lord, remember that. Lord, I pray as we, we go from here, God, that you go before us and allow us, God, to live in light. In light of this promise, this, this promise that was fulfilled in you and your actions on the cross. I pray to give us confidence to come before you. Give, it, give us confidence, Lord, that even we might slip, we might misstep, we might stumble, God, we can look at that slain Savior and know that it has all been dealt with. God, I pray that that confidence would spill over into our relationships with others, God. That we would encourage each other, encourage those who are in the household of faith and then turn around, God, and to plead with those who are outside the family, God, to repent, to turn, just as John the baptizer did. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your fulfilled promises. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.